This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Ron Berger about his book, Leaders of Their Own Learning, Transforming Schools Through Student-Engaged Assessments. Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you, Trevor, for having me. Ron, I was wondering if we could begin by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Sure. Thank you, Trevor. Um, I live in Western Massachusetts. And I was a public school teacher in a very small town in which I currently live. I built a home in this town. I've been in the town for 40 years. And it's such a small town that pretty much everyone in the town under the age of 50 is a former student of mine. Because it's, it, it's a town with one school. And, uh, you know, like old-fashioned New England kind of place. Um, I did my my graduate work at at Harvard Graduate School of Education with Howard Gardner and have continued to connect with them, even though I went back to my own teaching in my small town and with other colleagues, Steve Seidel and others at Harvard. And a few years after I did my graduate work there, I was part of an effort to to found a, a new network of national schools called Expeditionary Learning. And so I have had sort of two lives. I was working full-time as a teacher and also working to help get this new school network. That's a project-based, character-infused school network off the ground. And that network is, is sort of a confluence of Harvard Graduate School of Education and Outward Bound USA, which is the wilderness, building character through wilderness experience organization. Um, about a dozen years ago, I left my teaching job, and now I work full-time for the last dozen years. I've worked full-time for this school network, Expeditionary Learning. How did you come to write Leaders of Their Own Learning? Um, we have a, a school network, Trevor. It, it's, it's similar to the school network that you work for, High Tech High, although we are national. So we're uh, about 160 schools spread around the country, charter schools and district schools, um, public schools. And the schools are really great places, high-performing, beautiful schools that that um, have great results in terms of traditional measures, test scores and college acceptances for kids. Um, most of our high schools are trying, are getting every single kid into college. Um, and But they also have beautiful teaching and beautiful work going on. Um, but to get that work out to teachers, the teaching practices and the strategies and structures, we actually had to physically bring them to our schools. Like we were hosting visitors and trying to arrange for people to go to our schools. And it just started to seem silly after a while. Like we just couldn't do it fast enough. So um, a few years ago as an organization, we decided we had to start creating videos and um, books and also collecting all the student work from our schools and from other great networks like High Tech High and, and providing them as open source resources for the world. So um, Leaders of Their Own Learning was the first in a series of books that we, where we are trying to mine our best schools for their best practices and, and share those in book format as uh, sort of instructional guides for teachers around the country. You've already mentioned High Tech High. Expeditionary Learning has partnered with a number of different school organizations, including Envision Schools, a New Tech Network, and many others, um, to promote deeper learning competencies such as critical thinking, collaboration, and communication. Um, Oftentimes, different schools do these through project-based learning and internships. 
I'm wondering, how is the approach of expeditionary learning different from other deeper learning schools? Well, Trevor, there are, there are about 10 different school networks that are part of the, the deeper learning network. And, and the first thing I would say is they're more, they are more similar than they are different. Like mostly we share a vision. All of the schools in the deeper learning network have a more personalized view of, of teaching and learning in which kids in the school are all well known. So if you go to any one of those network schools, the adults in those schools know the kids well, and the kids are all well known by adults. They all use projects to some degree. All of those networks use some form of project-based learning. And they also, uh, all this, all those networks embrace um, student making student work public. So having students collect portfolios of their work, having them collect the examples of what they create, and then share those examples formally in exhibitions and presentations. So most of, I think, what you'd see at High Tech High or Envision Schools or New Tech Network is exactly like you would see in expeditionary learning. Every network, though, has its own little genius or its own little area that they do particularly well. Big Picture Learning does internships really beautifully well. High Tech High does super high-quality project work in a way that you almost see nowhere else. Um, and I would say if you were to think what makes expeditionary learning slightly different than those others, um, it's two things, I would say. One is is this um, very deep focus on character that we because we came from Outward Bound, every day in every school we discuss character. We discuss the kind of human beings we are becoming, and all the other network schools in the Deeper Learning Network believe in that as well. But it's perhaps a little bit more of an explicit focus in EL schools, that character is sort of the heart of, of what we do. And the second is that we have gotten pretty geeky about instructional practice in a way that not all the other deeper learning networks have. So, in fact, they make fun of us sometimes for being a little too uptight about the extent to which we obsess about great lesson plans and great instructional moves. And when we're codifying that in our books, you can sort of see that geekiness of we spend endless hours looking at our best teachers, trying to figure out what is it they do that makes things work and our best leaders and thinking about what is it that they do that work and developing frameworks for those. So we're a little, we're a little more compared to high tech high, for example, which I know well, we're a little bit more obsessive on those kind of details. In the book, you write that full implementation of the assessment model requires moving from a how-to mindset to one that involves completely rethinking assessments. What exactly is student assessment? Well, we use this phrase student-engaged assessment, um, which doesn't necessarily mean that it's self-assessment only, but it means that students should be involved in the assessment process always. Because in the end, the main purpose of assessment is to make students better at what they do. Like that's the only reason we assess students is to make them better learners. But somewhere in the process, assessment has gotten so pulled away that it ends up being used only for ranking. It gets used for ranking students, ranking teachers, ranking schools, ranking districts. And it's not that we never need to rank. Occasionally, we need to rank students or teachers or schools, but actually not so much of the time do we need to. In our own jobs, rarely are we all ranked. As a teacher in a school, you are not ranked compared to your fellow teachers every week as to where, where do you lay your schools are, you know, it, this, this ranking obsession, I think is not so helpful for us. We need to get back to sort of what really matters about assessment. And the most important assessment that goes on a school in a school, every school is assessment. We don't see it's the assessment going on inside student heads. Students are always assessing. Is my work good enough? Is my behavior good enough? Am I asking enough questions? Am I, Am I really involved enough? And that's the kind of assessment we want to get in and change. We want to get kids invested in, do I understand this well enough? And if not, what do I do? Is this work I'm turning in high quality enough or is it not? And so we say engaging students in the assessment process all the time builds those skills in them of being able to self-assess and then ramp up their own standards. So what are some different forms these assessments might take? Well, um, I will just say I, I spent 13 years going to public schools myself. And the process was teachers would give us an assignment. I would complete the assignment and turn it in. And I never cared about what quality it was as long as the teacher graded it well. 
So I would turn it in. The entire assessment was done by one teacher. She would grade it. She would give it back to me. It would say, you know, B plus, A, 88, 92. I would take it. I was done with it. We would say when students complete something, they should be assessing have they actually done in this piece of work what they hope to do? Did they meet their targets and goals in the work? Is it well-written? Is it thoughtful mathematics? Is it a well-done scientific piece? And they should be looking with their friends also. Peers should be assessing each other. They should go through a critique process. They should turn it in and get comments from the teacher, but they should also be looking with their peers to say, what could I have done differently? Did I meet this? What could be better? And they should be going through multiple drafts of those pieces of work so that they actually produce something of quality. Um, and eventually they should be presenting that work to their families, to their to outside audiences and say, here's evidence that I've actually learned what people hoped I would learn, what I hope I would learn. And my work is evidence of that. So all of those things are part of this assessment process of having clear goals, analyzing it yourself, analyzing it with your peers, analyzing it with your teachers, sharing it, revising it, and then eventually presenting it in some way as evidence that you can actually do these things in literature, in, in, in your literacy skills, your math skills, your science skills, your artistic skills. Like, here's the evidence that I've reached those goals through my work. And, and we find that when kids own that, then the, their education becomes theirs rather than something being done to them. The process you're describing um, sounds incredibly engaging and like it would produce more learning amongst students. But uh, my experience in school was much more like your own. Uh, it has me wondering, why do you think assessments have been so narrowly defined in the past? Well, I, you know, I think the most important assessment that teachers do, teachers like yourself, is also something that people don't realize, which is, you are watching all of your students all day long, Trevor, in your classroom and continually assessing how they're doing emotionally, how they're doing academically, how they're doing interpersonally. You have this storehouse of assessments of how do I push this child here? How do I help this child here? What does this child need next? That kind of assessment is the assessment that matters most. It's your professional judgment as a teacher about how to make kids take steps forward academically, personally, in their character. But the kinds of assessments that you're held accountable for and that your schools are held accountable for are nothing like that. So the, the kinds of assessments that kids and teachers and schools and districts are held accountable for is this once a year or three times a year outside decontextualized test that then is allowed to rank students. And so that's the only kind of assessment we talk about. That's the kind of assessment that the country is obsessing about. And when we talk about data-driven instruction, we're actually talking about the data set that they're talking about for driving instruction are these spaced out like once a year, twice a year, decontextualized individual tests in two subjects, literacy and math. Like true data-driven instruction should be you're using the data every day, your observations of students, the student work, that it could be quizzes and tests as well, but it's the things they create every day and your perceptions of them every day to drive your instruction. So I think it's not the fault of teachers. It's a system that only prioritizes one kind of assessment, which is high stakes, decontextualized assessments in two areas, literacy and math. Knowing that our audience is aware of formal assessments, such as tests that occur at the end of the year or a grading term, how would you explain the other assessments that teachers are taking, either informally or on an ongoing basis? Yeah, um, great question, Trevor. So we do actually advocate the use of learning targets. And this idea of learning targets is not one we invented. It's something we adopted about 10 years ago. Um, it came from uh, the Assessment Training Institute, Rick Stiggins and Steve and Jan Chapui and that group. And we started using it, and we were not very good at it at first. But over the last 10 years, we've gotten pretty good at helping teachers learn how to use learning targets. The idea of learning targets is that instead of the kind of education that you and I remember, which is you go into class and if you're a good student, you do what you're told to do, but you don't actually understand what the goal is of this work. You're just doing it because you're being a good student. The teachers tell you to do this. They tell you to do this. You do it as well as you can and you're done. This is letting kids know ahead of time. These are the things we hope you'll be able to do. And you can sort of help us figure out how to get there. 
So to use an outward bound metaphor, it's, it's like, here we are. Do you see the peak of that mountain right there? That's where we have to get to. We have to get to the top of that mountain. And so I'm going to try to help you lead you there, but every single one of you can be thinking, how do we get there most effectively? How do we help each other get to the top of that mountain? And so when kids come into a lesson or a project in one of our schools or high tech high, if they see here are the things we hope we'll get to, the kids themselves will have ideas about how to get there. They get motivated because they think, oh, this is where we're supposed to get to. I can think of many different ways to get there. I can think of ways I can study differently, work differently, because I actually know this is what I'm able to do. And so let me make that not so abstract for a moment here. Um, a learning target is an I can statement. I can do this that you present to kids and then they think, okay, I have to figure out how I can get to the point where I can do that. We usually build those learning targets from standards, but we don't take the lesson, the, the wording of a state standard and then just put the word, the STEM I can in front of it. Um, I'll use a very specific example. I was working with a first grade teacher and she had a state standard that said, Students will understand the monetary value of all standard U.S. coinage. So we looked at that standard and we thought, okay, it's a sensible thing. Like in this state, you want first graders to understand the value of money, coins in particular. That's a, I mean, kids handle coins. This is a very sensible standard for a state to have. Um, but if you said to kids, you need to understand the standard monetary value of standard U.S. coinage, first graders would think, I don't understand what you're saying. Right. So this teacher created a learning target that was, I can think of many ways to make change for a quarter. And then some of the kids said, I already know a way to make change for a quarter. You can use two dimes and a nickel. And then other kids said, but there's more than one way. Like you could just use nickels. And then other kids were saying, but what if we use pennies? And immediately the kids got excited because they thought, at the end of this lesson, I have to be able to do that, show many different ways to make change for a quarter. They got really excited about it. They owned it. It was tangible for them. They took out all their play money, you know, these little plastic coins, and they started charting. This is one way we could do it. This is one way we could do it. This is one way. By the end of that lesson, every kid in the class knew every possible different way to make change for a quarter. And since we don't actually use coins in the U.S. bigger than a quarter very often, I mean, there is a 50 cent piece and a dollar, but we don't really use them. Mm -hmm. By the end of that lesson, these students actually had met the state standard perfectly. But it was because they were excited about it. They understood it and they owned it. Like they were motivated to do it because they thought, oh, that's what you want us to be able to do. Great. Let's get going. Which is very different than an objective living in a teacher's lesson book. And then the kids not knowing what that objective is and just sort of doing whatever the teacher is telling them to. So the thing that learning targets do is transfer the ownership of learning to kids. This is the skill you want us to get. Okay, let's get going. Let's get good at this. And so we would say that that's the beginning place for assessment, having clear goals for kids that they understand. Then they can self-assess, am I getting closer to that goal? And then when they present to their families or their uh, to peers or other people, here's the evidence that I have met my goals. They have clear goals they can show. I was supposed to learn how to factor an equation. I was supposed to learn uh, the understanding about this culture. I was supposed to get these skills in science about how to run experiments. Here's the evidence that I've done, met those goals. And that they have clear um, objectives that they can show that they, they have evidence of having met. So um, what it sounds like in this case of learning targets is that you're taking what states or schools want students to know or be able to do and you're translating that into language that children can understand so that they can uh, play a more active role and uh, control their speaking. own learning. Yeah, that, that was much more succinct and clear than the way I tried to describe it, Trevor. Exactly right. Um, in your chapter about learning targets, um, you recommend that teachers themselves um, may want to implement these in their own professional development meetings in order to promote that school-wide implementation that's going to benefit students. Um, could learning targets and the other assessments that you talk about in your book, uh, say portfolio practice, um, be used by administrators to evaluate their teachers or by teachers to just uh, guide their own professional learning? Uh, would this be advisable? 
Well, you know, I mean, it seems a little silly, but we actually, in our organization, EL, we actually use learning targets all the time. We use it in all our meetings. We use it in, in our institutes that we do. Like, we've gotten so addicted to the idea of, like, what are our goals? Let's make it clear what we're aiming for when we start so we can all be on the same team trying to get there. So our teachers have set learning targets for themselves. Our staff sets learning targets for themselves. It really, it's just making it, making it clear where you want to get to helps everyone get on board with, with supporting each other to get there rather than just sort of being a passive person being pulled along with your principal's agenda, with your, your leader's agenda. It's like, let's own this together. What are, what are our goals for work? Um, in the book, you seem to suggest that children, regardless of their age, can do complex work that incorporates um, increasingly abstract content, as long as teachers are identifying those learning targets and then planning backwards. This has me wondering, uh, what are some of the most ambitious examples of student work in terms of their complexity and the degree of abstract content they address that you have seen teachers successfully scaffold for students at different elementary school grades? Um, boy, there's there's so many that I mean, my, the passion of my life, Trevor, happens to be being inspired by great student work. Um, I everywhere I go, high tech high schools, EL schools, big picture schools, and vision schools. Like when I see beautiful, complex student work, I'm always amazed, and I just feel privileged to to see it happen. Um, but you know, let let me use a, a specific example that's a little remarkable, which is we have an elementary school in. Rochester, New York. And downtown Rochester is, it's not a beautiful place right now. It's one of those Northeast industrial cities where the industry has mostly left. So a lot of uh, poverty, the downtown has gotten empty a little bit, lots of empty storefronts, things have gotten run down. There's not a lot of money to, to make the downtown look great in the middle of town. So there was a, a bond issue in that town to revitalize the the now dried up sections of the Erie Canal that went right through the center of downtown, which are now empty places that are full of homeless people and drug deals and graffiti and trash. I mean, they're just these, this scar in the center of the city. It's a canal that's dried up and there are empty spots, broken concrete. And so somebody said, why don't we like rewater all that and make it an urban waterway with restaurants on the side and stores. Like it'll bring tourists to town. It'll make people want to be in our town. It, it will be like the San Antonio river walk or, or the mm-hmm. Providence, Rhode Island uh, river where people want to be there because it's a beautiful place with bridges, you know, and it, the bond issue did not pass. And the students were really disappointed. These were sixth grade students. They were, you know, young kids. And they just thought, that's wrong. Why didn't it pass? And they took this on as a project to think, can we figure out about why this, how it was planned from an engineering standpoint and how it was pushed from a political standpoint? How did this get built? So they started meeting with experts. They met with the engineers who designed the plan. They met with the politicians who tried to get the bond issue through. They met with the business community. And they took this on as their personal mission to say, can we reopen this issue? Um, they raised money and they, they visited four different cities across the United States. This small groups of public school, sixth grade kids went with adults to visit um, San Antonio and Oklahoma City and Providence, Rhode Island and Ottawa, Canada. And they met with the mayors of those cities and the city engineers. And they met with the business leaders and political folks and said, how did you make it happen? You guys got an urban waterway built. How did you get the political capital? How did you get the business community to invest like what made it work in your city? And the amazing thing is that these mayors and engineers were just amazed that these little kids in ties and dresses were there interviewing them about such a serious issue that they actually allowed them to meet with all these people. They then came back and they spent a year building a case and prepared a report for the city saying it works in other cities. It could work here. Um, the, they were not able to get it lifted because they said, we don't have enough popular support for this. Our surveys have shown that public doesn't support it. So the next year, the, the next incoming class of sixth graders kept the project going. And they looked at the demographic surveys that had been done that determined there was not enough support and thought they were really flawed surveys. So they started working with a survey expert 
and they prepared a different survey about would you support this project under these conditions? And they resurveyed the entire city of Rochester using their survey, which was a better instrument, actually, having worked with an expert, and got very different results. And I don't want to go on too much more, but I will say that the city has now committed tens of millions of dollars to actually do this urban renovation because of these little kids having led this. So they led a major urban reform project in their city that is multi-million dollar renovations that they had to learn the science around the engineering of the canal, but they also had to learn the whole political structure and the business structure of how do you get something done in a city? How do you get the right people on board to support an urban renovation project and get all the constituents and all the players aligned for the good of the city? And um, the kids who started that project uh, are now college graduates. Like this is how I, you know, and the process is now happening. And one of them, whom we had as a, a keynote speaker at our national conference, has gone into civil engineering as his career because when he was 11 years old, he was so in, involved in this thing. So it's like, I think we really underestimate the capacity of kids to do great things if we could give them those opportunities. Sorry for the long story. No, I, I, I totally agree that um, we all uh, may be underestimating what kids can do. And that has me thinking not only about uh, the children and their relationship to their teachers, but also their parents and these other community members who are seeing and participating in these projects. Um, Having children produce high-quality work, um, it, it will be better if it's presented in front of that adult audience. But this requires something from the audience, um, their full attention, thoughtful questions, critique. Um, what do you recommend teachers do to help prepare parents and community members who have never um, seen this kind of thing before? Um, great question again. I I would say there's... I would differentiate those into two things. For parents, the, the book Leaders of Their Own Learning suggests um, something that many, many of the deeper learning network schools do. But it's a little odd for people beyond that, which is having student conferences run by students. So that the kind of parent conferences that happen in schools across the country um, usually happen only in elementary school. By middle school and high school, those usually end. We suggest that they go K to 12, that from kindergarten all the way to 12th grade parents come to the school to figure out how their kid is doing and that it not happen once a year, but multiple times per year. And we also suggest that those conferences are actually run by the students themselves, that the students present to their parents and their teacher, here's all the academic goals and character goals and personal goals and athletic and arts goals I had. Here's the evidence that I've met them. Here are my papers. Here are my projects. Here are my tests. Here are my accomplishments. Here's video of me doing it. So students become the spokespeople for their own work. Parents think that's literally crazy at first. But as soon as they see their own kid presenting his or her work beautifully, the parents totally understand how powerful that is. Like parents cry in these meetings often because they think, oh, my God, my kid is presenting herself so beautifully. Uh, It's a very powerful experience. And similarly, if a kid is struggling, the kid has to say to their family, I haven't been so honest with you, but I've been struggling in math right now. Here's the evidence of it. Like it allows you to really work on what you need to work on because it's not glossing over it. And, you know, it's the kid actually owning. I'm doing really well on this, but I really need to work on this. So what we have found is that attendance at these is close to 100 percent at our schools. I mean, parents who often would avoid a regular parent conference, especially if they think their kid is struggling. It's different when their own kid is presenting to them. So, so the parents really do get on board with understanding how this new kind of assessment works because they come and they sit down and their own child says, mom and dad or dad or mom or grandparent, whoever their foster parent, they say, here are my learning targets. This is, these are my learning targets in math and in reading and in science and in character. And let me show you evidence that I've met each one of those, or I'll show you evidence where I'm struggling to meet some of them. So I'm going to use this paper, I'm going to use this test, I'm going to use this project to show you. And they get into a dialogue with their own kid. And so we find that parents get taught by their own kids how this new assessment works. It's different for community. When you invite community members in, they don't understand this because it's not the way it was when they went to school. It wasn't when I went to school. 
So the kids have to become ambassadors for that. So if we invite the community in to a community presentation of student learning, the kids have to know ahead of time that people are not going to understand this new approach. And so they have to be explicit about it. They have to be ambassadors and greet people and explain things. They have to produce documents that make it clear how they're showing their learning. Um, because if, if people grew up in a traditional public school where no student ever presented their work publicly to the audience, they need to understand how this process works, what an exhibition of learning is, how kids show evidence. So we teach our kids to be ambassadors and explain it to community members. Here's how we'd like to get your critique. Here's how we'd like to get your perspective. This is the kind of work we did. This is what we'll be asking you to do. So they're thinking not just about uh, the project, but how to communicate the project to an audience that may not understand it. Exactly. Again, you were more succinct and clear <laughs> than I was in my rambling explanation of that. Uh, my next question is about teachers. Um, as a teacher myself, I know it takes a lot of time to provide opportunities for students to produce multiple drafts, assess their own work using rubrics, reflect on a regular basis, and then ultimately curate their own best work into portfolio presentations. Um, my question is, um, for teachers who aren't accustomed to doing all of these things, is there a best uh, place to start? And also, how much explicit instruction are teachers doing around these, these different assessments? Um, there's a few suggestions I would give here. The first is that I think models are the most useful thing for kids and teachers. So I think all of my abstract words on this interview are not nearly as useful as a visit to a school where this is done well or looking at videos of students presenting their work well. Or uh, we have a, a website of student project work, for example, that's an open source website it's called Models of Excellence, where there's hundreds and hundreds of beautiful pieces of student work from EL schools, from high tech high schools, from schools that are not even in any network. People send us beautiful student work and we curate it. We select the best of it and, and post it. I think the best way to, to, to learn this is to see it happening and then think, okay, I can borrow that, but I can change that. So we have, we have dozens and dozens of videos of, of all of these practices of students using learning targets, of students self-assessing their work, of students presenting work to their families, of students presenting work to the community. And they're not perfect because they're real stuff. But I think watching a three-minute video or a five-minute video of this being done well with your colleagues as teachers, you can think, ah, that's what that's the kind of thing we're aiming for. But we would do a little differently here. Or I like this one, but I don't like that one. So we're not presenting them to be prescriptive, but to be descriptive here. Like, here's what this kind of practice actually looks like. Here's what the kind of student work often looks like. Here's what the learning targets. Here's what student-led conferences look like. Here's what presentations of learning can look like. And here's a number of different models because we have models from different schools who use it slightly differently. There's not one way to do it. So I guess the first thing I would say there is that models are a great place to start um, to, to, to really um, not think abstractly about how to make it look, but actually look at through, through examples of work, videos of work, or actually going to schools. What are the practices that make sense to you as a teacher and, and how can you use them? I had a second point, but I'm sorry. A lot. Sure. Um, I was just going to ask you to follow up on that. Um, is that a process that teachers can also use with their students? How might teachers use models to uh, guide students through these assessment processes? Um, it's funny. We do the exact same thing with students as we would do with teachers on that, which is um, I, we're big fans of rubrics. And I'm personally a fan of rubrics, but I think a rubric absent a model is pretty empty. So if you give a kid a rubric of what a good essay is or what a good math solution uh, geometric proof look like, but it's only a bunch of words. It has this, it has this, it has this. The kids don't actually have a picture of what that would look like. You can tell them what a good essay, a good persuasive essay is, but unless they've read a good persuasive essay, they, they don't have any vision for it in their heart and mind of what they're aiming for. So I think the combination of collecting great models of essays or geometric proofs or lab reports or history projects 
and then using that model to make the rubric come alive. Like, okay, the rubric says this, what does that look like here? Then kids think, oh, okay, I see what we're aiming for. And collecting a variety of models. So kids are not copying just one vision. Uh, you know, many times the, the most powerful way to begin kids on any kind of great work is just bringing in other student work that's really well done and thinking, what do you notice in this work? And kids immediately think, whoa, that's really great in this way, but I'm not sure why it's great in this way. And once they get into that conversation, they're excited to begin defining what quality is going to look like for them in the piece that they're about to start. Um, I know that some teachers may have some anxiety about showing uh, other student work to their current students for fear that uh, their current students might just copy that work. Um, can you talk about how uh, you think about that challenge? Yeah. Um, most teachers in America, whatever, whether they're first grade teachers or 11th grade teachers, give some of the same assignments every year. I mean, not exactly the same assignment, but they're always assigning, you know, this kind of lab in science or this kind of essay that they have kids write for English or this kind of book re review that they have kids do or this kind of historical uh, research paper. And every year they get some really great ones and a lot of ones that are mediocre and some really awful ones. If you just save the great ones and you take the student name off and you say, Trevor, do you mind if I use your work as a model? in future years. And you'll be honored. Of course, most uh -huh. students will say, of course, it's fine. The following year, if you say, okay, we're going to write a research paper for our AP history class. But before we even start, I have three different papers, very different in style, actually, but I think they're all very interesting AP history papers written by farm students. The first thing we're going to do is read them and just give me your reactions to them. What do you notice in them? Then students immediately have a vision of what a high quality history research paper looks like and and different models of it actually not just one and and they'll get obsessed with trying to name their preferences their their priorities are like this is what makes this one strong this is what makes this one strong pretty soon they have built their own rubric with you about what they're aiming for in a high quality paper we just as teachers don't often save those things and we don't use them as we could now, will there be some copying of strategies if kids have looked at a few great papers? Absolutely, there will be. And I welcome that. I think the way you get good at something at first is by doing a little copying. If we're trying to become great writers, we read great literature and we start borrowing ideas and steal some things. If we want to become great musicians, we listen to great music and we borrow a little bit. Having students do some copying of ideas while they're learning to get good at something to me, is one step before they, be, they they turn totally improvisational with their work and totally into original with their work. We can't expect every kid to be originally and creative and great all instantly. Mm -hmm. So I think we as a country worry a whole lot about individual creativity and copying in a way that in other countries, when I share this message, they don't worry at all. I mean, in, in many other countries, the way you learn how to be great at something is you watch a master do it and you copy it and you copy it until you're great at it. And then you can begin to improvise and do it yourself. So this sort of heritage of learning from great craft is very valued in many other countries. But you come to the United States and people here are like, yeah, but it, everything has to be totally different and kids have to be totally individual. And I don't ever want to show them a model because they might copy something from it. And I think yeah, that copying is sort of part of the learning process. I even, we even suggest in Yale to make that explicit, to say, let's look at a piece that was created by a kid and let's look at a piece that was a tribute piece to that, where this kid took that same idea, learned a lot from that first kid, but improvised a little bit, customized a little bit herself and made it slightly different. And so kids will often say in our schools, this is, this is sort of a tribute piece to the piece we looked at by Trevor. Like when we looked at Trevor's design for that robot, I got a lot of ideas. So I have to say my piece is partly a tribute piece to Trevor, but I did some things that Trevor didn't do because I thought, you know, the shape of the robot is pretty much the same, but his is a wheeled robot and mine's a track robot because I felt like this and I did this change, you know, so I want to give, you know, Trevor a lot of credit for having inspired me on this, but I actually made some of my own. So this idea that you don't hide it when you copy, you, you, uh, you give citations when you, take ideas. You 
you attribute your work to, I was inspired by Trevor's piece, therefore I did this piece, and this is what I customized and made my own. Making um, that process okay to do. I, I love that uh, that language, tribute piece. Um, uh, as we're kind of wrapping things up here, I just wanted to share that I've been following your work for some time, and uh, but I recently became aware of uh, new parts of your biography. Um, you were an art major in college. You initially came to teaching through politics, and you're actually once a supporter of free schools, which advocated for the rights of students to design their own curriculums and actually democratically participate in the operations of the schools themselves. Um, this is interesting to me because I studied political science and uh, I'm familiar with some free schools uh, like um, Sudbury Valley. And so I was mm -hmm. wondering a little bit about all of those things. First, how has your experience as an artist informed your views on teaching? Um, well, I, w I was an art major for a while and then also uh, worked in architecture a bit. And the normal way that, that you did work in art or in architecture was you came up with your work, your design, and you posted it on a wall and everybody else critiqued it. And you, uh, you started to understand what you hadn't thought out well, what needed to be improved, how people felt about it. And when I came out of the art and architecture world into the other education, I thought, why are we not doing that in every field? Why are we not posting our math solutions on the board? Why are we not looking at our writing in that way? Why are we not looking at our science designs that way? Like, why, why don't we take all the work we do and continually sort of post it, either physically post it or share it electronically or whatever, and think of it in the same way as artists think of it, which is critique is part of the learning process. So for me, I just took the, the entire vision of critique from the art world and brought it directly into education. I mean, I'm not the only person who did this, of course. And the portfolio model, too. When you apply to an art school, you don't use your SATs to get into that art school. You bring your physical portfolio, or now digital portfolio, of artwork. And you say, here's my sculptures. Here are my paintings. Here are my dance performances. Like, Am I good enough to go to your art school? Why do we not do that with academics? Why don't we have kids keeping portfolios of their academic work to say, I'm applying to your college or I'm applying to your job. Here's the work. You can actually see the kind of person I am through my work. So art really inspired, not just me, but many people to bring both the, the heritage of critique and the heritage of portfolios into the mainstream of other academics. In what ways do you think teaching can be political work? Well, I, you're right, actually, that I did. I, when, I let, when I left my, my art major, I, was, I got into political science and I felt like education was, a, was the social justice issue of our time. I grew up in the civil rights era in the 60s, and I thought that the next iteration of the civil rights era is making sure that college attainment and higher education was available to all kids. And so this was a real political issue that the quality of education in wealthy areas was really different than the quality of education in poor areas in America. And I don't just mean urban poor. Rural poor was even worse in some ways. Um, and I taught, I, I live and teach in a rural community or I taught for 28 years in a rural community. So this idea of equity through equal access to great education for all kids was sort of my entry into education. I didn't expect to go into education. And you're right. My, my first venture into this was through the free school movement was this idea of can kids help run their own schools and the, and tapping into the capacity of kids to step up as leaders within their own schools. And there's a lot of the free school spirit still in me personally, but the, the, the fault of the free school movement was it tended to serve white middle-class kids whose parents felt comfortable having their kids have lots of freedom. And recently we've, you know, it's come up that if we need a system, it's going to be, have to be a system that works with all kids, especially with low income kids and with non-white, non-middle-class families. And so I think there has been a big push lately to go toward a much more highly regimented system of learning that many of like the no excuse charter schools are doing in urban settings where they're able to raise test scores and commitment to a very regimented, almost obedience-based way of learning for kids. It's highly structured. Um, kids are sitting up straight, listening all the time, taking good notes. And I I'll have to say, I visited many of those schools and they are 
many of them are way better than the other alternatives for kids in their cities. So I'm not critical of those schools for, I, I think those schools are doing a great job of doing some things really well and providing an alternative for kids. But they're not what my vision is or what Yale's vision or High Tech High's vision, which is moving beyond having kids be obedient learners to leading their own learning. And, and I think that there's an idea that, well, that might work for white middle-class kids, but it can't work for urban kids of color. It can't work for minority students. It can't work for rural farm kids. Like they need a more structured kind of education that they, they don't get to step up in leadership roles and run in roles and run their own projects. And I don't believe that to be true. I mean, the, the high tech high schools, the Envision schools, the big picture schools, the, the new tech schools, the international schools, the EL schools, they're showing that it's possible to make that kind of student leadership and student ownership live with all kids, not just wealthier kids. So, you know, most of our students in our schools are low-income kids. Um, many of our schools are primarily low-income kids of color, and yet they are running their own conferences, they're running their own projects, they're running their own political campaigns, they are active in their communities, they're stepping up as leaders, and 100% of them are getting into college. I mean, so I think we're underestimating, again, kids' ability to step up in leadership roles. So that's the part I'm trying to take from the free school days. It's like, can we take that student leadership and bring it into today? So um, what I think I hear you say is that um, you are a fan of thoughtfully designed structures that not only promote student voice and choice, like the free schools, but also further equity, um, most often seen maybe in these no excuses schools. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say so. And, and I think th there's sort of a false split that happened. It, it, and there is a fault in the free school movement. And I was in the middle of it, so I was at fault as much as anyone back then, which is we, I think the free school movement did not embrace deeply enough the issue of courtesy and respect with kids. So kids tended to be often, to be totally candid in those free schools, very independent and not particularly team-oriented or respectful. Mm -hmm. of each other and of adults. And, you know, we have a school in the middle of New York City, which is 100% of the families are Dominican. And those are these families have a beautiful sense of courtesy in those families. Kids are extraordinarily polite. Adults are extraordinarily polite in their culture. If we set up a school there where kids were loose and impolite and discourteous and going everywhere, like, they'd throw us out. So having a school where Kids are wearing uniforms where they're incredibly polite, where they're gracious, where they're just immediately respectful of adults in every setting is a place where when adults from that community that have come from the Dominican Republic, they're not fluent in English, they walk into the school, immediately they think these kids are incredibly gracious, polite, respectful, courteous, like everything I want in my kids I'm seeing in them. And yet the pedagogy of the school is kids are running incredibly great projects and owning their own learning. So I think we've, we've falsely married exploration and creative learning to sort of disrespectful, disorganized social structures. You can have a very calm, focused, and respectful school where kids are courteous and on point that are also doing creative work. And so I, I think we have to disconnect those two and say, you can have an active inquiry-based school that also has the social courtesies that makes other families from different cultures, different from white middle-class culture, for example, feel comfortable. My kids go to the school and they are incredibly polite and respectful kids. Plus, they also do this crazy, wild, interesting work. Mm -hmm. That's the, the joining that free schools didn't have when I was in them. And that's the, what we're aiming for here. Um, would you say that there's one common thread that ties all of your education work together? Um, I, again, I think it's the, the capacity of kids to do important and beautiful work is something that all of us underestimate. It, um, it's, 
when you see what kids are capable of doing at their best, like the work that I spend my life collecting for our website of beautiful, important project work, you realize we have not been asking enough of kids. We have not been empowering them enough to, to do this kind of work. And, and we, I take ownership for it, like all of us as a culture, we, we don't understand the great things that kids can do. And um, so our work is sort of how do you build structures that get kids unleashed to do great things? I, I think that it's clear that you are uh, helping to change that culture. Um, Ron, we've taken a lot of your time. So I just want to ask one more question. And that is, um, what are you working on right now? Um, we have two books, actually, that I am. I'm a co-author, like Leaders of Their Own Learning. I had great co-authors. I have co-authors in EL on these next two books. Uh, both books are coming out this year. The first one is called Management in the Active Classroom. And it, it, the idea is um, teachers need classroom management. Every teacher needs, especially new teachers, need classroom management. And there have been not so many great books on that. Um, Doug Lamov's book, Teach Like a Champion, sort of hit that market. Mm -hmm. Because it was a really concrete book. Here are strategies you can use to get your class focused. And here's a video of how that strategy looks. And we can describe the strategy very simply for you. And that book is one of the best-selling books ever in education because yeah. teachers really needed it. So we thought that's beautiful, but we need a complimentary book. Because that book is about how to get your class running carefully when all the kids are sitting at their desks. What about when kids are doing projects or working in teams or, or active? How do you manage it then? And so we have this complimentary book called Management in the Active Classroom about if your classroom is busy with kids working together, building robots, painting murals, doing things, you know, doing scientific experiments, how do you manage that classroom well? And how do you get the kids so well managed that you can leave the room and come back a half an hour later and it wouldn't, they wouldn't even notice you're gone? That's the goal. It's sort of this self-managed classroom where kids are so motivated that you don't actually have to be overseeing them every second for it to be managing, that the management becomes internal. And then we have a second book um, on deeper instruction of how do we do the kind of instruction that you do at High Tech High, that the other deeper learning schools do, that we do. Can we name some of the moves in the same way that we tried to name assessment structures and moves in, in leaders of their own learning? We're trying to, to codify the best practices we've seen from our teachers in our schools who are masters of great instruction, here are the kind of instructional strategies that they're using that we see working best. So, um, and we're, we're shooting videos of every one of those things too, because if you read the book, you need to, and you need to see the video too. You need to see how this looks when a teacher is doing it. So I, I, the best part of my job is I get to go into classrooms of great teachers and get amazed by them and then get a videographer in there to work with me to capture them if we can. Those sound like fantastic projects. Uh, I would look forward to reading both of those books. Thank you for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. I so much appreciate just the, the chance to be in dialogue about this with you and to share my personal passion for great student work. Mm -hmm.